0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Our first reading is on page nine from Colossians 3, verses one to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Second reading is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and had been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you, loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we pre- preached the gospel to God of God to you. You were witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Spirit of God.
1: Okay, both passages are about healthy Christian communities uh, or compelling communities, and just a heads up, <clears throat> I spoke this message this morning at 10.30, someone spoke to me afterwards, this message begins in a sobering way, just to give you the heads up, a little bit depressing even, but it's important to face negative realities, especially if we're going to chart a path through it, and you'll see what I mean in a moment's time. I'm hoping that this is a hopeful message, actually, uh, about the way Christian communities can avoid genuinely toxic behavior. But if anything triggers for you, don't feel free to leave, of course, if you need to, but I'd love to pray with you afterwards, after the service. And so I'm sure with Bronwyn and Graham, if there's anything in this message that uh, is difficult for you to hear. Let me pray. Father, we seek your will, not our own. We seek change in your power, not in our own strength. We ask for deep conviction. We ask for a, deep, a deeper integrity. We pray for it in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The evangelical Christian world looks like it's imploding. It hasn't, not yet. It isn't, I don't believe, but it looks like it is. Why do I say that? Well, there's been a plethora of Christian leaders who've been exposed in recent years for, you might call it, toxic behavior. Sexual sin, uh, exploitation, bullying and abuse. It has been, quite frankly, depressing. And for many people, destabilizing. Maybe it has been for you. Is it meant to be this way? No. Could it have been another way? Yes. Is it the way of Jesus? No. These people are acting in the opposite manner to their creed. In the opposite way to the one whom they claim as their saviour. This is not the way of Jesus. Amen? I won't say who they are and what they did. You can look it up. It's called Dr. Google. But just to give you a sense, you've got Ravi Zacharias in Atlanta, Georgia, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, Carl Lentz in Hillsong, New York, and closer to home, you've got Steve Timmis at Crowded House in, uh, in Sheffield in the United Kingdom, and Rowan Patterson is publicly online as a person who has been damaged by that That ministry, although some of the people there, and uh, even closer to home is Jonathan Fletcher at Emmanuel Church, an Anglican church in Wimbledon, just outside of London. And in each or at least most instances, there's been a culture of protection around the evangelical warrior, the one who appears to be producing what one might call success. And I've just... Listed there, the recent ones. We haven't even started to talk about the abuse of children in churches, the bullying of Anglican rectors of their employees, and the institutional responses to child abuse and many other and other injustices perpetrated on the vulnerable. It's not that it's true everywhere, and uh, you might call it mi- minority reports. Uh, But they're real and they are genuinely damaging. Now you'll have your own knowledge or pain in this regard and some of you will have personal knowledge of these churches, these ministries. My wife Laurel, who's American, as I said a moment ago, went to school with Ravi Zacharias's daughter. Really, it hits home. In fact, Laurel grew up uh, in Louisiana and she grew up very near the old televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. It's one of the earlier ones that sort of went south early. She wrote about Jimmy Swaggart in the Eternity magazine last month. She writes about driving past his property in in rural Louisiana twice a day, going to and from school as his mansion, Jimmy Swaggart's mansion was being built. She says that after the mansion and the landscaping were completed, she thought the work was done. But the builders then began to build a wall. It wrapped around his property and grew higher each day until one day you couldn't see the house anymore. You couldn't see any part of his life from the road. She remembers wondering as she drove past, even as a young child, who needs a wall that high? Great question. She writes, and I quote, I knew as a kid that there was something not right with Swaggart, certainly with the decadence of his lifestyle, but more than that, with the need not just for privacy, who doesn't want that? Not just for privacy, but secrecy. A few years later, she writes, it became clear what he wanted to hide, which only confirmed for me the importance of the life Of a Christian leader, or any Christian for that matter, being visible from the road, open, transparent. We're going to open up 10 verses from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter to the Thessalonians today and visibility is the key to the section, that second reading that was read to us by by Victoria a moment ago, and not just visible from the road, it's important that we have openness and transparency to others, but Paul's going to argue he has a life visible to God, and that truth that life is visible to God could dismantle the abuse, at least not build it up, at least protect against it. We're looking for a deeper integrity in our ministry. This evening, this message is in no way an attempt at a comprehensive answer to such vexing questions. Just an important reflection for, for, for us, for all of us, from this passage. So, so I'm confined to this text because what we do here at this church is teach the Bible and we choose a section of it to teach each week. We're in an eight-week series, the second week in Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians written in the latter part of the year 50 AD. The events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection are fresh. 1 Thessalonians is five chapters. You can read it in 15 minutes. Bus ride, quite frankly. Or if you're a runner like me, you can just put it on your earphones and listen to it on a three or four kilometre run. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is a letter... For us, but not to us. It was written to a people long ago, and yet the letter is for us. It's from God and for us. It's a word not from humans, but a word from God. And it is a simple letter, but don't mistake the simple nature of it for simplicity. It is a profound word to people who want to be followers of Jesus, not just admirers. Do you remember my quote from Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, last week? Listen. The admirer of Jesus never makes any true sacrifices. Jesus needs no more admirers. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. They always play it safe. Admirers play it safe. Though in words and phrases and songs they are inexhaustible about how highly they prize Christ. They talk the talk. And yet, the admirer renounces nothing. They will not reconstruct their lives, and they will not let their life express what they supposedly admire. They just look out and go, isn't Jesus good? But not so the follower, says Kierkegaard. 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest glimpses into the life of the earliest church and the earliest followers rather than mere admirers. This letter was written before the Gospels were written. This letter was written before Acts 2 was written or any of Acts and so you can see by reading this these five chapters what the earliest reconstructed life reconstructed according to the gospel according to the kingdom of God what it looks like and the beauty is we can reconstruct our own lives according to that gospel last week we said first chapter Paul writes this big few this thank God he had been in Thessalonica only a short time we know that from Acts chapter 17 We read that Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians from the Scriptures, from the Bible, the Old Testament, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer. He had to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. That's a nice detail there, isn't it? But he was persecuted and forced to leave only after a number of weeks, driven south. And as he was heading south, fleeing persecution, Paul didn't know if the new Christians that he'd set up in the important city of Thessalonica had been bullied out of their faith. He didn't know if all his labour and the suffering was in vain. It's agonising. In two weeks' time, we're gonna get to the heart of his agony. But Paul sent Timothy, when he could stand it no longer, we're gonna read this in two weeks' time, who brought back news that they were okay, they'd survived, they were still Christian. And so he thanks God for the faith, hope, and love that produces work, labor, and endurance in them. That's last week. And so our text begins today in verse 1, page 11, page 10 of your order of service. And those who are following online, make sure you can follow the text as well as the outline. The outline's on page 10 for those who are live streaming. The text begins thus you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. You know it wasn't in vain. You know it wasn't in vain. He writes in verse 2 that Paul could have been thrown off his game in the previous town, but he wasn't bullied into submission, and this is good news for the Thessalonians. Verse 2, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you god's gospel in the face of strong opposition so paul told the thessalonians the gospel that jesus christ is the messiah the king and that means that caesar is not lord and that was dangerous paul told them that jesus had died for sins and forgiveness and that he was raised for new life as the forever king and therefore there's hope not despair life not death up not down this is the gospel of God, God's gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel the word gospel, by the way, in the ancient world was an ordinary word, and it meant something like this. You declared good news an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. You know, Caesar's defeated enemy, therefore Caesar is Lord. That's a gospel. The historical event the Paul proclaimed is the one of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and now there was a new situation for the whole world and this message was astounding. It was crazy and some Thessalonians believed it. It seemed so foolish to the world around it. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, it was a foolish message. It sounded dumb. To people who don't believe but to those who do believe is the power of God. Tom Wright cheekily gets this in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, he says this, an old rather unpleasant joke used to go the rounds about someone who had been to see God and on returning declared she's black. Something of the same shock, like this dislocation, I didn't expect you to say that, something of this same shock was felt around the pagan world of late antiquity by the declaration of good news, which went like this. We have a new Lord of the world, and he is a crucified Jew, raised from the dead. Ridiculous, offensive, scandalous, but good news. Just what you might expect from a new worldview. So as we look at these few verses together, I want to ask a question, how did the results come? That's just the text. And then I want to offer two new perspectives in ministry and then three gospel remedies for a modern church addressing the problems I raised earlier. So firstly, the results were not in vain. How did the results come? And the answer is they came by the gospel. Uh, It was not without results. God touched them by his method, namely the proclamation of his message, but then, Paul takes great pains to say how that message was ministered. And the answer is, with integrity. In verses 3 to 6, the gospel we preached came from pure motives. I'm telling you, they were pure. the motives were pure. There were no masks and there were no trickery. In other words, I wasn't playing games. I wasn't into power games. I wasn't trying to make you love me more. I wasn't trying to get you to come to my church. I wasn't trying to get you to vote my way. This wasn't about money or power or anything else. This is about nothing else, said Paul, but your salvation. You can know God. Listen, verse 3. For our appeal that we make does not spring to you from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. You see that? Paul is assuring them there's nothing else going on here. And he says in verse 4, verse 5, he says, we didn't use flattery, we didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. He knows we didn't do this. We were not looking for praise from people, nor, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. There were power options available to us. We didn't take them. There were mask options available to us, And we rejected them. That was how the results came, the gospel through a deeper integrity. Now I don't know about you but I don't want a mask. I know all of us have some version of imposter syndrome, what am I doing here, What what, how do I get to speak this stuff, I'm a frail human being. But may it be true that this ministry comes from pure motives, not trickery, not masks, nothing else but your knowledge of God. So that's how the results came. Secondly, they came by familial care as a child, as a mother, as a father in verses 7 through 12. It's fascinating that Paul frames up his ministry in familial terms, not institutional terms. I'm an archbishop coming to see you. I'm not, by the way. There's not an institutional game being played here, nor business terms. Who's your market? How do you win them over? What's your business proposition? How are you going to find success? KPIs, none of that here in this language. I'm not saying those things are wrong, it's just that he frames things up in family terms. And note that Paul, a male, doesn't read it through a male lens. Look at verse 7. Instead, we were like young children among you. We could have bossed you, but we were like young, we were like kids just happy to be with you. It's otherwise translated, we were gentle among you. It's a difficult word to translate. We were like children. But if it wasn't clear, in verse seven, he says, I'm I'm like a nursing mother. Verse seven, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. I was like a mum. We were like a mums, nursing mums. Or later, like a father, verse 11, and a particular kind of father, by the way, because you'll have in your mind what a father does, and you could even be surprised by what Paul says a father should do. Look at verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, and here it is, verse 12, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you out of his kingdom and glory God calls you out to reconstruct your life on the basis of the gospel. This is how our short visit with you was not without results. We were a child to you. We were mum to you. We were dad to you. Gentle, caring, encouraging, comforting, urging. And here's what it looked like in verse 8. Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. By the way, the way the sentence is structured, it's not we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, which is all we could have done, but we decided to give you a little extra our lives as well. That's not how it's framed. It's framed as the two coming together and being necessary in some form. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but by necessity our lives as well. We wanted to be open to you, And so he appeals to their memory in verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. And by the way, there's no getting around it. The guy was turfed out for the gospel. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. While we preached the gospel of God to you, he worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker. You are witnesses, verse 10, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. You could see it in our lives. Not only the gospel, but our lives as well. That one phrase could shape and change your life. Not only the gospel, but our lives as well. It will change domestic life, work life, life with our neighbours. I hope you meet Christians from time to time and you think, wow, your life is reconstructed because of the gospel. And you can see something of this in their lives. So then, that's the text. I want to give you two new perspectives on ministry and three gospel remedies. Firstly, two new perspectives. I hope you remember these. Two minds, two modes of ministry. I hope we're touched by them here at Church Hill. I get that Paul is the one speaking here, by the way. There's no reason to disbelieve him. And I get that Paul is telling us how he did his ministry and none of us are apostles, but there are lessons for us. Two new perspectives. The first new perspective from Paul is that we seek to please God, not people. That'll stop you from running around. That'll give you a centre, a base. That's in verse 4b. This one's interesting. To please God, not people. It's summarised by the popular phrase to play to the audience of one. You've got it? I'm playing the piano. I play to the audience of God alone. Or when I'm doing work, I'm playing to the audience of one, I'm thinking about what God thinks of this moment, not what this boss, and that report, and that, you know, when you're running around trying to please everyone. No, you're not trying to please everyone, you're just trying to please one person, God, who sees everything. Now, when I first heard that phrase, I loved it, I'm like, bring it on. But as I got older, I thought of the phrase negatively. Namely, that a person who says, I play to the audience of one, could say, stuff you to everyone else. I play to the audience of one, could easily justify bad behavior. I care only about God, so I don't have to listen to the board. I care about God, so I don't have to care about what the government says. I play to the audience of one, so I don't have to give a damn about others. I play to the audience of one, so I can do what I want. Now, obviously, not the meme, the, the, uh, the phrase is not intended that way, uh, but it could be treated that way. But Paul obviously believed it. He believed in playing to the audience of one. Look at verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the message, with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. It's as though Paul believes that prayer that Andy led us in a few moments ago. You know, that prayer of preparation, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open. All desires known. And no secrets are hidden. That's our God. Paul believes it. And because he believes it, it drives him not to not care about others, but rather it is his motivation to care. For others rather than justification for self, it's the reason to be open to others, to care for others. So that this truth doesn't end up being used as a if I can be a bit cheeky with 6 p.m., I wouldn't do this with 8:30. You don't get to put a middle finger up to culture. Because I play to the audience of one, I'm a Christian, I think about God. I have to care about the media or the church. I care about the praise of God, not men, so I get get to go on being offensive. That's not how Paul talks about it. For Paul, it's a reason to love, to open his life. Why? Now, I I can't be exactly sure, but I do wonder if it's this. The big thing in life is taken care of. The one love that counts, the one one approval that counts. The one approval you really care about, the divine one, is taken care of so you don't have to run after the approval of 10 or 50 others. What that means is that you can be at peace about everyone else. And out of that place of peace, out of that non-anxious presence, you don't have to press your rights. You can be like a child. You can just live and love and speak the truth. But without fear, the approval of God means that you can cease to try to control outcomes. It's the first mode of ministry pleasing God, not people. The second one, if you follow in the outline, is by changing the mode of ministry from institutions to family. Institutions, by the way, are important, and I'm done with certain sections of our society doing everything they can to dismantle institutions. We are are diminished by the damaging of institutions. That said, if you have an institutional mind on a matter, then the individual won't count, and we've seen that time and time and time again. I think institutions are important as we regulate society. But if you just care about institutions, you'll care about you won't care about the individual. But if you care about the individual, the institution will then begin, I think, to move in a way of care, flourishing. The mode in ministry must always be family, gentle like a child, caring like a mother with a baby, guiding, encouraging, comforting, and urging like a good dad. They're not clients. Members of churches are not potential pew-sitters. They're not business partners. You are family. I'm family. And it makes sense, given the gospel, that God the Father, through God the Son, has made us sisters and brothers of each other and sisters and brothers of Jesus Christ. We're going to say it in a moment's time when we pray our prayer of confession. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's our mode of ministry. I am your brother in Christ. May it always be so. So briefly, three remedies for the modern church. They're huge thoughts that I'm only going to touch on them. I'm going to open a door. This, by the way, is they remedies. They're not a vaccine. A vaccine sort of promises immunity, uh, whereas a remedy doesn't necessarily do that. What I'm about to say doesn't guarantee health and good behavior. It doesn't guarantee that the toxic behavior won't continue to happen. They're more like treatment that we ought to take. And if we take these remedies or treatments, we're less likely to fall into toxic behaviour. First, we need to be clear rather than clever. Paul was famous for clarity. There is a gospel, the gospel is the power of God, so there was no need for adornment, flattery, trickery, gimmicks, trying to be clever over clear is problematic and the reason is, is because it's about people loving you and saying, aren't you smart, aren't you clever? i think so many of the ministries that trip up maybe it's just because we hear about them in the news they're staffed by very talented people super talented and they're they're not to blame god made them that way but often people start saying how clever they are and how amazing they are and yada 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 and they start to believe it very dangerous paul will say elsewhere rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception nor do we disturb, distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. When we don't pursue this remedy, we are open to toxic behaviour. It doesn't guarantee we won't have it. Some very clear people and very unclever people also trip up, but it's the right remedy to take. Second, we need to be open and transparent and accountable. We need ministries that don't use masks. Ministries where information is hidden. We don't need it anymore. We don't need it where leaders can't be questioned, where criticisms are framed of not being supportive of the mission, where voices are squashed, where a governing body isn't able to speak up, where people can't speak up. If you hear of staff or key leaders at this church hiding information, if you perceive that someone will be punished for information, then take action. If you hear anything that's abusive, then please call the police. There are methods and ways in which we can handle information, and we're not trying to do this internally, but you can call the diocese. It's harder to hide when we're open and transparent. By definition, Paul writes, because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well, when we don't pursue open and transparent lives. We are open to toxic behaviour. And third and finally, uh, we need to be familiar rather than institutional. We aren't, in the first instances, defenders of an institution. God can defend the institution. You don't have to. But instead, uh, especially in the local church, we love and serve sisters and brothers. And not with a mask on either, not with ulterior motive you can do it with ulterior motive, by the way. You can say to people, look, I was like a father to you. I, I did so much for you, therefore you owe me. Uh, but we don't want that anymore. We want rather integrity. We want a deeper integrity. When we don't pursue this, we are open to toxic behavior. No, we want to become like a child, being gentle, not bullies. We want to be like a nursing mother. There's no way you'll hurt your child. You want to be like a father which is what what does a father do this is not toxic fatherhood encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of god who calls you into his kingdom and glory let me leave you with laurel for the last word laurel my wife goes on christian leaders must live in a way that is above reproach but never beyond it you should Pull the wall down. This is essential living for each one of us. For it is when walls are built that enable abuse to occur and continue, we have to ask ourselves if we have been complicit in the building of that structure in any way by our trust or by our money or by our praise or by our silence. Just as the creation of walls of secrecy and inaccessibility may involve many people, so does their dismantling. There is work to be done to prevent abuse in the church and it's going to take all of us to do it let me pray father we we're going to have a moment where we get to confess our own sins but we also confess the sins of the church uh, not just in recent times but over decades and centuries the very people who are called to follow Uh, the beautiful saviour have been ugly in their behavior and for this we ask we beg for your forgiveness as john dixon says uh, we've not just been saints but bullies as well and we repent of such evil we ask you then to give us the mind of christ we pray that this ministry would not be without results and in doing so father i pray that we give us pure hearts not trying to use trickery or gimmicks, not trying to use masks. We pray that you'll give us hearts of parents to children, uh, children to children to, uh, to those around them. Give us gentleness and patience and kindness. Take down walls of secrecy and shed light into our community give us the mind of Christ. Father, we know that you see all things. You are the Almighty One to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. So we pray that you will take away all the secrecy, dismantle it amongst us, and be our vision, be our wisdom. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.